One thing for which there is total agreement from both the atheist and the true believer is that the universe that we live in is one that is perfectly ordered and precisely structured. A biologist by the name of Cecil Heyman put it really simply. He said, from the drop of water seen through the microscope to the distant star observed through the telescope, I marvel at the exact orderliness that I observe. So that, what, so that laws have been formulated to express its consistency. Somewhere back of all this order must be a supreme being, for there's no order and no law without a supreme being. So it is that we find from the most minutest of object to the most magnificent of object, there's an evidence of structure and order of striking simplicity, but at the same time, synchronicity of complexity that boggles the mind. In fact, in just the simple 10 drops of water, 10 simple eye drops of water, there are as many molecules as there are stars in the whole universe. Even Einstein, who in his early life said that he hated the idea of a supreme mind, that it irritated him, he said, but he would later concede that there is a set of universal laws designed to encompass not only the boundless gravitational and electromagnetic fields of the interstellar space, but also the tiny, terrible field inside the atom. And then he added, the scientists' religious feelings take the form of rapturous amazement at the harmony of natural law which reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. In other words, what he was saying, rather than there being this fictitious claim of the evolutionists that the world was formed accidentally and randomly, chaotically, and there was no guiding principle behind it whatsoever, we find instead an absolute and inviolable, inviolate set of nature's laws, the laws of nature, things like gravity or entropy or magnetism or rhythm and even harmony and cause and effect. Even, to name a few, gender, the laws of gender that there is male and female. You see, all of this exists within the basic patterns with beauty and harmony and consistency and stability, visible even in the simplest structure of the water molecule, and that is a thing called a unilateral triangle. Although it is found in the simplest of molecules, it is also found in the very expression or revelation that God gives to us of himself that God exists within the same equilateral triangle of being. There is Father, there is Son, there is Holy Spirit, who are co-equal and co-eternal, distinct and yet individual, yet perfect in oneness and indivisibility. So it only follows that the universe which he created would follow that same form. We read, in the beginning, time. God created the heavens, space, and the earth matter. Time, space, and matter, 
These are the compositions of our universe. And even within them, there's triangular relationships of time has the past, the present, and the future. Space has length, width, and depth. Matter has solid, gas, and liquid. So that we find from the largest to the smallest atom, there is the electron, the proton, the neutron. And even energy itself can be subdivided into kinetic potential and chemical energy. So that when Paul says in Romans 1.20, his, speaking of God's, invisible attributes are clearly seen. And then he adds, being understood by the things that are made. That God essentially says he has put his signature written large in the universe so that anybody who is willing to see it could see it. Even mankind, we're told by the apostle, is similarly constructed of three parts, that we have spirit, we have soul, and we have a body. So it's not surprising that when God organized mankind into civilized societies, that he used the same kind of equilateral triangle. He had the family as the foundation, he added we could say worship or religion, and then thirdly, nations. That if for mankind to live in a society that is cooperative and supportive and safe, these three things have to stand and they have to be honored and respected for their individuality. And it's when one aspect seeks to dominate the other that instability begins to come, especially when we find that either religions and nations seek to dominate the family. These things that are equilateral but independent and dependent upon one another really find their ultimate foundation in the family itself. It's composed of a father, a mother, and children. But fathers are the foundations of the family. Next week, I'll talk about the ladies. So, ladies, as you're sitting there going, oh, good, he's finally going to get them. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Yet, when God designed the structural dimensions of the universe... And he created the laws by virtue of them just being always there. It wasn't like he spun off the law of gravity. He just created a universe that has gravitational realities that can't be denied. And so we call them laws. But when he did it, he said they're inviolate. And in other words, I mean, if you violate them, you throw the universe into chaos. In fact, Ray Bomberg put it very simply. He says... When something doesn't follow its intended design, chaos and confusion follow. And then another law of nature, the law of entropy, comes into play when things go from a state of order to disorder. That's why we don't jump off of high buildings without some device to counter the law of gravity. We don't drive or fly into immovable objects because of the laws of motion and inertia. And then we know we can't be, something can't be both true and false at the same time because there are the laws of logic. That life cannot come from non-life because of the law of biogenesis. 
And men cannot become women because of the laws of gender. We call these the universal laws because every sane person on the planet universally accepts them as being definite, real, unchangeable, immutable. They are called truths. They are called reality. But when sin entered into human history, ironically, tragically, amazingly, both men and angels tried to defy these laws of God. Angels can't become God, but Satan tried. And he's still trying. And people can't become God, even though Satan told Eve she could. But we still try. We still try to be the master and the captain of our own lives. And we fail, often painfully and often miserably. The Bible has a word for this. It's called lawlessness. It's the desire or the effort to live outside of the boundaries of the realities created by God. And this is also what I refer to as the great anomaly of the universe. That an absolute, sovereign, all-powerful ruler of the universe would give to mankind a smidgen of sovereignty, a little bit of self-rule and self-government that would enable us so that we could say yes to God, but also gives us the ability to say no to God. We call it free moral agency. We can call it free will. But God, who controls everything and brings everything irresistibly into conformity to his will, that in the end, no matter how much I say my will be done, eventually it's only his will that's going to be done. The same God that created all this and controls all this so desired for you and me to have the ability to choose to say yes to him knew that that would mean nothing if he didn't also give us the capacity to say no. Despite the fact that saying no will always have unavoidable negative consequences that the Bible says they always lead to death and destruction. Nevertheless, this has not slowed mankind's willful role. I mean, when we talk about marriage, for example, Jesus put it in such precise and exacting language. When he said in Matthew 19, he said, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. That doesn't just simply refer to intimacy, but it's the idea of procreation, that they can come together and create children. And so they are no longer two, but they become one. Therefore, he said, what God has put together, let man not separate. Yet we have and we do. And the consequences are bad. Divorce always brings a chaotic mix of emotions, including fear and grief and anxiety and depression and guilt and anger. 
And this is especially true for women and children whose lives by God design were meant to be founded upon the provision and the protection of their husbands and their fathers. But when husbands and fathers leave or are forced to leave the home, that family often becomes a house that's built on sand, as we talked about two weeks ago, and it begins to fall, and oftentimes with a great crash. In terms of just money alone, fatherless homes experience a 72% drop in income on average. Poverty in America today is primarily a problem of fatherlessness. But it's children who are the primary victims, right? See, there's a myth in America that kids just need a caring parent. I've heard people say, well, mom, now you have to be both mom and dad. What an impossible burden. We wonder why kids grow up in single-parent homes, struggle mentally and emotionally. The truth is that we don't need parenting. We need fathering and mothering because God designed the family to include both. And when you break down that structure, like taking away one of the legs of a triangle, it will quickly collapse. Yet in the 1960s and the 1970s, divorce, which had been taboo up to that time, suddenly became to-do. <laughs> A little play in words there, taboo to to-do. In 1950, when I was born, 4% of children lived in a single-parent home. 4%. We look back on the 50s as this glorious age of the wonderful time to be in America. And I remember looking back on it and thinking it was. I didn't know anybody who had divorced parents. Every home I visited had a mom and a dad. Dad got up and went to work. Mom cooked and cleaned and took care of the kids and made sure that they were still alive when the dad came home. And sometimes in my household, that was a questionable end. I remember having no fear of going downtown or into the city or out to the country. We wandered. And I always knew that if I did something that was wrong, there was somebody in the neighborhood who was going to rat me out. <laughs> but we didn't lock our doors. Never even occurred to us to lock our doors. But today, the divorce rate is somewhere above 50%. When you think about it, that half of couples who are going to have a wedding probably won't be married in five years. And then you add to it when people say, well, the divorce rate has finally leveled out and they don't tell you the rest of the story. The reason it's leveled out is because more and more young people are saying, let's just live together. Let's not go through all of that. Now, the studies have found that men are really the most in favor of the idea of cohabitating because it's so much cheaper and easier to leave 
when you're not legally bound by the contract of marriage because that's what marriage becomes is a legal contract in which the moment you marry this beautiful young lady, she has a right to half of everything you own. And that's not a big problem when you first start out because you don't own anything. (laughs) But the story that's not told is that 75% of couples who live together before marriage will never marry because it's so easy for the man to walk away and disappear. Today, the single-parent home is the norm. 43% of children who are born today are born to single moms out of wedlock. 51% of all of our kids in our society will grow up without a father. And in the black communities, it's as high as 70%. And not surprisingly, the impact has been nothing but disastrous. 63% of youth suicides happen in homes without a father. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are kids who grow up without a father. 85% of all children who show behavioral disorders don't have a dad at home. 80% of rapists come from fatherless homes. 71% of high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. 71% of all children who become substance abusers, drugs, and alcohol, 71% don't have a father in the home. 70% of teenage pregnancies come from young women who were raised in fatherless homes, and studies have found that what they're really struggling with is trying to find a father figure to fill the void in their hearts. 85% of prison inmates come from fatherless homes. 75% of mass shooters, you know, the guys who go and shoot up the schools, come from homes where there's no father in the home. You see, criminologists have found that that fatherless home is the most powerful predictor of crime. And we might ask why. Well, the answer is real simple. They offer it. They say fathers who maintain authority and discipline, in other words, they lead their homes, they're at the head of the home, it enables young men to develop self-control and empathy and a healthy sense of who they are. They have a clear sense of what it means to be a man and how a man should behave. We simply say they become civilized. Dr. Warren Feller, who is the author of a book called The Boy Crisis, observes, he says, when a boy asks, who am I? The answer is that his identity is comprised of half his dad and half his mom. If he thinks his father has abandoned him, He fears he is not worthy. And boys who do not have a strong relationship with their fathers lack a model of healthy masculinity. Many of the school shooters struggle with a sense of damaged masculinity and sought to become ultra-masculine. The end of this spectrum is getting a gun 
to suddenly have power over other people. You know, it was the late rapper Tupac Shakur. I know a lot of you still listen to us. who said that he started out hanging out with gangs when he was a young boy because he wanted to feel like he belonged to someone. That there were older boys that he could look to as an example. Unfortunately, they were acting out the same way he ended up acting out. But he said before he was himself finally assassinated by another gang, he says, I know for a fact that had I had a father, I'd have some discipline. I'd have more confidence. Your mother can't calm you down the way a man can. You need a man to teach you how to be a man. It was interesting because up until 1990, every single study on the causes of homosexuality came to exactly the same conclusion. We're talking about dozens upon dozens of studies that were done. What's the cause of same-sex attraction? And they, every single one of them came to the same thing. Every one of them had a damaged father figure, oftentimes an abandonment or an abdication or just a, a father who was emotionally absent. And sons go out trying to find their father in other men. That's why when the American Psychiatric Association changed the definition of, of, the, of what is a personality disorder and they removed homosexuality saying it's no longer a personality disorder, it was interesting because the head of the committee, the head of the organization, in fact, himself was a practicing homosexual and drove that conclusion not based upon the science or the studies or the data, but simply because that was his preferred pronoun. So when you complain about the state of the union, the dysfunctionality of our national leadership, granted, I'm in full agreement, they're complicit with their inane policies, their twisted values, their idiotic ideology, their moral decrepitude, their general lack of competence. We need to keep in focus the fact that the problem didn't begin with them, though it may well end with them. But as forecast, as we talked about last week from our Oxford sociologist J.D. Unwin in his review of 5,000 years of world history, he said again, if three consecutive generations abandoned sexual restraint and the protections of monogamous marriage and fidelity, you're talking about intact families, if they forsake that dynamic, that triangulation of fathers, son, and children, or father, mothers, and children, he said, it takes three generations before the society will collapse without exception. He based that on studying every major society he could find for the previous 5,000 years of world history. And as we talked about last week, it always followed the same trajectory. When the family failed, the society failed. And the family failed because the fathers were more concerned with their own personal gratification 
than they were with leading their families. We have to remember that it was God who said, thou shall not commit adultery. And it was God who said, a man shall not lie with another man the way a man would lie with a woman. But he says, you know, if you do these things, he left us a promise. And it's not a very encouraging promise. He said, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That means basically, the original language means that I, am, I demand exclusive worship. You do not have permission or allowance to worship anything else, whether it be something of a spiritual nature or whether it be of a material nature, whether it be an idol that you have made or a concept that you have created. Idol or ideology, he says, I demand exclusive commitment to me and to me alone. Because if you don't, he says, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers. Interesting. It doesn't say anything about the iniquity of the mothers. The iniquity of the fathers. You see where God sees the primary responsibility. And keep in mind, the word iniquity means that something is morally unequal. There's a moral imbalance. There's a moral chaos that he says, I will visit that iniquity of the fathers on the children. To the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. It's almost like Unguin was reading the Bible when he was doing his research. We understand it. Our culture has followed and now is pursuing, pursuing a, a trajectory which is basically a God-hating trajectory. It's godlessness. Godless means God is left out of the equation. God is no longer the consideration. That at best we live in a culture that says, well, if there is a God, I mean, that's fine, but it doesn't really affect my life. It's certainly not going to inform my choices and my decisions. I'm going to do it my way. Which I always found humorous that Frank Sinatra had that chiseled on his tombstone. I did it my way. You look pretty dead, Frank. (laughs) You can't outrun reality. You can believe whatever you want, but you can't outrun reality. But as we've been talking over the last few weeks, we talked about how that this godlessness really developed because humanism justified it, psychology rationalized it, education normalized it, and the courts legalized it so that it became legal to do what the Bible says is sin, is immoral, even what the Bible says is perverse And what we saw was an explosion of the sexual revolution, sexual immorality, sexual liberation, it was called. The Bible called it simple libertinism, that I have the freedom to do whatever I want and nobody can judge me. Anything goes. And it's surprising that we begin in the aftermath of that sexual liberation to begin to legitimize divorce It's a crazy term they have legally. They call it no-fault divorce. I don't know of anything in life where I can say there's no fault. But it also encouraged fathers to 
become abandoned. And there's a state of confusion, gentlemen, that we're living in now. We used to be condemned for being overbearing, controlling, and insensitive, and you know, demanding to be in charge. And now, today, most men are afraid to be in control. A man's afraid to say or to be identified as the Bible identifies him as the head of his home. Because after all, we don't want to spread our toxic masculinity all over the place. Let me tell you, the lack of masculinity in the home is more toxic than anything. So what we did with our sexual immoralities, we gave permission for fatherlessness. As Sue Ebling wrote in an article, an editorial in Newsweek magazine some years ago, she said, the sexual revolution did not liberate women, it liberated men. It liberated them from the responsibility of being faithful husbands and good fathers. So she said, while we single moms specialize in recipes of cornmeal, our former husbands are flying off to exotic vacations around the world with their new girlfriend with a smaller waist. You don't have to leave the home to abdicate your responsibility as a leader. The idea, the image of a father who sits quietly in the corner watching TV or reading the newspaper or on the, on the does anybody read the newspaper beside me? Anyway, on the keyboard or whatever it is, but basically they're present but not engaged. Or whether it's outright abandonment or being absent, we abdicate that most basic of responsibilities that Scripture points out to train our children to provide for them materially, to protect them physically. Because as this has been taking place in our culture where it's not happening, we find it's just a matter of time ultimately that the culture itself will collapse and with it our civilization. If there's anything that would be qualify as the canary in the mine, remember that they put canaries in the old mines because if there was a gas leak, the canaries would drop dead. And if there's any canary in, in the mine of America, it's the fact that fatherlessness is becoming epidemic. You can't have young men running through the streets misbehaving if you have them grow up in a home where the father teaches them discipline, where the father teaches them hard work, where their fathers teach them how to be responsible and empathetic and caring and to love their wives and to love their children. I often wonder how long do we have? The other night as my wife and I were watching a program on National Geographic, you'd kind of think that would be a safe channel. And I began to see the commercials for programs, I guess, running on other networks. And I won't, even, I won't even tell you what they were promoting. It just staggered me. Every form of sexual immorality you can imagine. And I thought, how many young people are sitting around consuming this stuff? How many of their dads and moms are sitting around consuming this stuff? 
The question we may and should be asking is, what are we to do? Well, in one sense, I think what we need to do is start claiming in faith the rest of what God promised. That he promised simply that The sins of the fathers will be visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. But then he went on to say, but, and I think this is one of God's big buts, but showing loving kindness, literally it would translate lavishly bestowing unfailing love and mercy and grace upon those who love me and keep my commandments. I mean, reflect on that for a moment. That God says, even though there are these terrible consequences, if you fathers fail to train up your children and lead and guide them and impress them and do all the things Scripture says we are to do, it's interesting to me because there are dozens of instructions on how fathers should relate to their children and only a couple of how mothers should. Because even Paul's day, they recognized in the corrupting and collapsing Roman Empire that he was part of, that's much like what we're into today. As he saw it, he saw the failure was the fathers, the understanding that the fathers needed to step up. That's why God said, if you will keep my commandments, if you'll make me the primary focus of your life, I will lavish my grace and my mercy upon you. And it means literally to the point of where you're just swallowed up and bathed in it. When I started listing things that I would suggest that fathers do to be effective, it got so long and I started feeling so guilty that I thought, i got to shorten this up. So I shortened it up. It's only seven things. I wish I could have done it in three because I know that most of us guys can't remember a lot. But the very first thing when he says to us in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go and he will not depart from it when he is old. You know, it doesn't promise that there won't be a period in between where they'll, they'll discover things for themselves, but he said they'll come to that point eventually in their life where they'll simply sit back and go, you know what? This was the truth. But he's telling you and me, gentlemen, it's our responsibility, not the school, not the government, nor just moms <coughs> to train up our children. It's something that we all, as dads, and fathers and grandfathers are responsible. And training up includes words like discipline. And discipline doesn't mean punishment. Discipline means training, setting by example, showing them the way. You know, there's something profound in a child seeing their father get up in the morning and go to work. And they come home at the end of the day having worked and still sober, and then making time for his wife and his children. 
There's something powerful when a child sees the father honoring and loving his wife. It's one of the most precious gifts you can give to your children is the harmony of your own relationship. Your loyalty and your commitment to each other. But I just remember being asked by some of my grandkids, will you and grandma ever get divorced? And I thought to myself, I asked them, I said, why, why would you even ask that? Well, it seems like everybody's getting divorced. I said, well, no, no. We're praying for the rapture. Well, at least she is. <laughs> That's why, secondly, I said, you know, <clears throat> by being an example, what does that mean? Well, 20 times Jesus said to us, come, follow me. It's not saying go and do this. It says come and follow me. I was thinking about it today that Things I learned from my father as a young boy, I learned how to pull weeds in the garden, how to cut the lawn, how to wash the car and change the oil and thousands of little things because he said, come, let's go do this thing. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, Paul would say to the church, therefore I urge you to imitate me. The same concept. Look at what I'm doing and do what I'm doing. In Hebrews 6, and again in chapter 13, he says, imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Remember your leaders and imitate their faith. Not their foibles, but their faith. Even in the last letter that John wrote to the churches, he said, friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Let it be your talk, let it be your walk, let it be the movies that you watch. Years ago, uh, my oldest son and I were asked to co-teach a, a uh, workshop on pastors and their kids. And so I sele carefully selected the one that would show me favorably. But, you know, I got up and shared my presentation, and then my son got up and gave the other half, and he said something that I had that left me in shock. Because you think of the things that you do that leave an impression upon your kids and shape and form and mold them, and what he said, I didn't even know that he even ever recognized. He said, I just know that since I was a little kid, I'd wake up in the morning and I'd walk by my dad's study and he'd be in the word, and he'd be in prayer every day. I didn't even think he ever noticed, but that imprinted upon him the path. The thirdly, we need to provide for our families. <laughs> 1 Timothy 5.8, Paul said, the man that doesn't provide for his family is worse than a non-believer. And he doesn't mean that you don't go through difficult times and you don't struggle. But I remember my wife telling the kids one time, he said, if your dad, if we didn't have enough money, your dad would go out and get two or three jobs just to make sure he would do whatever it takes 
to provide for his family. But fourthly, he said, spend quality not just and quantity time with your children. In Deuteronomy 6, he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. And he goes on to say, when you talk to them, when you walk with them, when you worship with them, he tracks them through every avenue of their life. He said, put them on the on the lintels of your doorposts. Wear them around your neck. Carry them in your forehead. All describing not a form of ritual dress as it has eventually become, but simply saying that let my word and your love for me be the most defining characteristic of your life. That fifthly, as we read in the opening passage, You need to be compassionate upon them. When the psalmist writes in Psalm 113, almost as an evidence of what's a recognized truth, he says, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. We need to be compassionate. We need to recognize that whatever they're going through, it's tough. It's hard. It's not easy. That sixthly, we need to pray. King David's prayer for Solomon in 1 Chronicles 29, 19. As he's turning the kingdom over to his son, he says, give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, requirements, and decrees. Lord, give my son wholehearted devotion. And the seventh thing is never give up. It's never too late. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with God all things are possible. I say that because of my own experience that um, even though my parents weren't believers at the time, I grew up to be a messed up kid. I mean, I was messed up. Had no boundaries, had no limits. I was in the process of making a lot of bad decisions. You know, as I often jokingly say, I was young, I was stupid, and had absolutely no future. And I mean that in a quite literal sense. I, I look back on it now and realize I was just a train wreck waiting for a bridge to roll off of. And suddenly I heard the gospel and transformed my life. And I remember the stunned experience when I came home after becoming a Christian. (laughs) Came home, I was in my dad's car and we're driving along and he looked at me and says, don't you want to turn on the radio? I said, no. You always get in the car and first thing you do is turn on that music I hate. Sorry. (laughs) And he asked a very interesting question. What's going on with you? (laughs) And began began a conversation about how Christ had come into my life and set me free. 
And he asked my mom, I wonder how long this is going to last. And 15 years, he watched me, and after 15 years, he asked Jesus into his heart because it lasted. Well, I look back on it now and realize that my grandmother and some other relatives who were Christians, and particularly my wife, were praying for me that I would get saved. They didn't give up on me. Even though my grandmother warned my mom, she says, There's a, this kid's in trouble. He's, he's going the wrong direction. And I realize now, I look back and saying, people prayed. So some of you, you know, I, I know how it feels, you know, about as fathers feel guilty about their kids. I've made, I've made it very clear in my last will and testament that my children are not allowed to speak at my funeral. <laughs> I mean, I get that. But the most important thing is that you don't quit. You don't give up. You don't think it's too late. You don't think that your prayers won't make a difference. They will. I had a friend of mine who's, a pastor friend of mine whose son was in the gay lifestyle and very far from Christ. And every time I'd ask him, so how is he doing? He'd say to me, he's still writing his testimony. I like that hopefulness. He's still writing his testimony. Because I believe with all his heart there was going to come a day and an hour when he would suddenly realize there's a void inside of my heart that needs filling and nothing I done, have done has filled it. And so I'm looking for God to fill that void. We have to believe that. We have to stand on that with confidence. Because the world changes, not through politics, not through armies, not through economics, not by ideologies. The world pivots on prayer. And if you have been guilty of prayerlessness, you're your own worst enemy. We need to be praying. I talked about the last couple of weeks about being prayer active. It doesn't mean that we sit on our hands and do nothing, but it does mean that we don't do anything until we have prayed and are sure that what we're doing is what God wants. And I think that ultimately when you sit there and say, what can I do to change the metrics of my marriage, of my family, of my, my community, of my nation, of the world. We can pray. That we have this amazing gift that God has given to us that we can actually change the dynamics of the entire planet by prayer. Why? Because God so loved the world that he was willing to give his only son to die on the cross for your and my sins so that we could be saved and that we could pray so that when we prayed, heaven was listening. And when we pray for souls, God is in total agreement because that's his will. That the world would say yes to God and stop saying no. No.